Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, I'm going to say that I think all of you know stress is just not going away. If you think there's going to be that moment where there isn't a looming deadline or looming pressure or looming change, I think it's not going to happen anytime soon. And in addition, if you follow Rob Cross and Karen Dillon's work on micro stress, you know that there's a whole level of smaller things that are just part of the things that happen in the course of the day that add stress. Lastly, I'm going to tell you, I know you think as a leader that you can manage the stress, but if you are not on top of it in some really critical ways, then you are at your worst position as a leader. You're not getting the best out of people. You're not getting the best out of your relationships. You're not being the best persuasion you can be. You're not being the best inspiration you can be. So this topic of stress is a really critical one for us to talk about. And our theme for today is mindfulness. Now, no doubt you've heard about mindfulness, and I will bet you've even attended a mindfulness workshop in your organization. And you may be a devotee, in which case, fantastic. And if you're not, I want to talk about why you should pay attention to it. Well, what do we mean by it? Why does it have an impact on leaders? What's the essence of this? And more importantly, how do you practice it without trying to spend hours on doing it? So my guest today is Matt Tenney. He's a social entrepreneur, and he's the author of two books. First one is Serve to be Great, Leadership Lessons from a Prison, a Monastery, and a Boardroom. Fascinating book, I might add. And his second book, the one we're talking about today, The Mindfulness Edge, How to Rewire Your Brain for Leadership and Personal Excellence Without Adding to Your Schedule. He's an international keynote speaker, a trainer, a consultant with the prestigious Perth Leadership Institute that serves Fortune 500 companies. He works with companies, associations, universities, nonprofits to develop highly effective leaders with lasting success all focusing on this notion of serving and inspiring greatness. And I'll give you a teaser that he has in a book coming out next year called Inspiring Greatness, How to Motivate Employees with Simple, Repeatable, Scalable Processes. We'll have him back for that topic. But our topic today is on mindfulness. And I should also add, just for fun, when Matt's not speaking and traveling, he's in Nashville, Tennessee. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Wanda. That's a pleasure. I feel like I'm just hanging out with you in New York. This is great. <laughs> it's fantastic. You should be here in person. It would be awesome. Um, I didn't mention that you have a great podcast as well. You, you want to give us the plug for your podcast? Sure. It's pretty simple. It's called Business Leadership Today. So it covers a, a range of topics for leaders who want to create and sustain world-class organizations in today's modern business environment. And we actually had you as a guest very recently. It was a wonderful interview. In fact, I took notes and learned about how I could delegate more effectively. And I really appreciated your time there. Great. Thank you, Matt. It was a great pleasure doing it too. So let's return the tables here. All right. Mindfulness. All right. Before everybody hits the stop button, um, let me ask you first, what do you mean by mindfulness? That's a great question because that this word 
is so used now. I mean, you even see it in, in like marketing where people, we're the mindful burger shop, you know, <laughs> and if there could be such a thing, you know. Um, so to make it really simple, I, I like to break this concept down into what does it mean to be mindful? And then there are practices that facilitate us being mindful or sustaining mindfulness. And and it's I, I think it's really important to separate these two because they're not the same thing. So okay. being mindful is the simplest thing in the world. Everyone's experienced it. There's nothing magical or esoteric here. If you've ever been thinking about saying something and then you heard what you were going to say in your mind and you said, oh, that is not skillful. I'm not going to say that out loud. That is mindfulness. So at its most simplest way of understanding this, mindfulness is when we are aware, but we're not identified with our thoughts. We can see them objectively, which which I just explained. You saw this thought, you heard it in your mind, You know whatever it was you were going to say, and then you caught yourself and said, oh, that's not skillful. I'm not going to say that. So you had this objective awareness of your own thoughts. That is mindfulness. When we have an objective, almost third-person awareness of our own thoughts, um, our mind and our body and the thoughts that arise within the mind. Now, as simple as that sounds, um, as you've probably noticed, if you try to be mindful, it doesn't usually work out very well, right? We, we, we feel like we're awake, we have an objective awareness of our thoughts and we're not distracted by them for, oh, three seconds maybe five. And then we're distracted by our thoughts. Once again, we become our thoughts identified with them. And so there's a whole range of skillful means for doing one of two things. One is to wake up again to that perspective of having an objective awareness of our own mind and the thoughts within it. And then there are skillful means for allowing this awareness to sustain itself. And I'm using those words very precisely because really the effort is to remember to wake up once okay. you are awake, if you really pay attention, you'll notice you don't have to keep trying. Okay. As soon as you become aware of your own mind, this is actually our natural mode of being. This is kind okay. of like our birthright, so to speak. But out of bad habit, we almost immediately go back to talking to ourselves, identified with our thoughts. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Being mindful is a, an objective self-awareness. And there are practices that facilitate either waking up to mindfulness or allowing it to sustain itself for longer periods of time. Right. Okay. As much as I thought I knew about mindfulness, I'd never put it in those terms. So you're right. We get it wrong all the time. I get that one. All right. Now I want to talk about why we should care, why it's so good. I want to talk about what the science is saying. And I want to talk about how we practice it, how mm. we wake up and how we sustain it. Before I do that, though, I always like to get the backstory from people. I want to know why you care about this topic. Why does it matter to you? Uh, well, for multiple reasons. It started off with a very personal reason as, in that this practice absolutely transformed my life. Uh, so a few years out of college, I had set very big goals for myself, and I got impatient. I took a shortcut to success. And I actually attempted a fraud against the government. And as a result of being both pretty stupid and doing several dishonest things, I ended up spending five and a half years confined to prison. 
And at first, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I was super depressed and I was suicidal for a couple of weeks where I just had almost nonstop suicidal thoughts. And it, however, it ended up becoming the best thing that ever happened to me almost entirely because of mindfulness. So about a year into my time in confinement, I, I started learning about the practice and I didn't have much else to do. So other than read books, you know, so I just started practicing very diligently. And after about six months of practicing, I noticed that I was making that effort that we just described to just wake up to notice what's happening in my mind and body and then resting in, in that awareness almost uh, every waking moment of the day. And it was at that point that I noticed that I was actually thriving in one of the most stressful environments on the planet. In fact, I was happier in a prison with no possessions, no girlfriend, no, no nothing super fun to do than I'd ever been in my entire life. So that inspired me to go as deep as I could with the practice. And I'd been learning principally from monks you know, people who devote their entire lives to the practice. And so I kind of transformed the prison into a monastery and I ordained as a novice monk. I mean, there wasn't anybody there to officially ordain me. This is kind of unofficial. Uh, but I followed the, the lifestyle and training of a novice monk for the last three and a half years that I was there. And there's a couple of ways that it, it created such a huge change for me. One was that I learned through experience that we can actually be happy no matter what happens to us. Right. So I think many of us believe this intellectually, right? We we believe that, oh, if I were homeless under a bridge, I could still be happy. Or if I lost everything I had, I, I could still be happy intellectually, but we don't really know. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to call being confined a gift, but in a way it was. I know from experience that we can be happy with nothing and th that a mind that is at peace and satisfied is a trainable phenomenon. This is not something that we that we need good circumstances for. It's just working with our own mind. This is a trainable process. The other big shift was that, you know, people thought I was a weirdo because here I am walking around a prison smiling all the time. I was extremely happy. I mean, as, as I am now. And I was asked almost every day, either what drugs are they giving you? Or <laughs> how can I learn what you know? And the people that earnestly wanted to know what I knew, I had this opportunity, this open door to share something that could be of immense value. And then it occurred to me that not only am I helping inmates to be more happy in a situation where they're really suffering, but I even had guards who were asking about this. And these are the forgotten, I think, people of our societies, people that work in these prisons. They're miserable. They're more depressed than the prisoners are. And you can imagine somebody who's stressed out and depressed, how are they going to go home and treat their wife and kids? So I realized like, wow, even from within this prison, if I help these guards to be happier, go home and treat their wives and their husbands and their kids better, I'm having this ripple effect throughout society without it even being technically in society, just from right here. So it really opened my eyes to the fact that we can make an incredible impact on society just with our presence, just with simple interactions. We don't have to go out and cure cancer necessarily. Just simple interactions that bring value to people. And that made my experience of being confined the most meaningful experience of my life up until the point when my wife and I had our first child. <laughs> so it was incredibly, incredibly meaningful. And, and that focus on serving others 
both in little ways and big ways, has been the focus of my life ever since. And the focus of your other book served to be great. Exactly. Matt, I cannot even begin to imagine what that experience must have been like. I can't imagine it, but I have no idea if I'm accurate or inaccurate or whatever. I think I'm largely informed by movies, which are probably not helpful at all. I just, it's, I, it's hard to wrap your head around what that would be. As hard as I imagine that was, it's even harder to imagine that a simple practice of mindfulness daily, regularly could make you happy in that environment. So I believe you, but it's hard to get your head wrapped around that. Well, here's the logic. And so this is just a brief intro to, to the practice, but we'll keep it very brief. This is the logic that inspired me. And it's so simple. So wouldn't you agree that if in any given moment, if you're not comparing that moment to any thoughts you have of the past or any hopes or thoughts you have of the future, there's really nothing wrong with that moment. Now, obviously, people will immediately go to the extremes like, well, what if you're being burned alive? How many of you have been burned burned alive? Right. <laughs> I mean, and even that, believe it or not, you can be you can be at peace in the most painful situations. I mean, highly trained monks can endure incredible levels of pain without any suffering at all. So there's a difference between pain and suffering. But let's just leave that aside for now. Let's just assume that probably 95% of your life are just simple mundane moments like walking to your car, brushing your teeth, um, doing work. Nobody's shooting at you. You're not being burned alive. So wouldn't you agree that in in 95% of your life, if you're just brushing your teeth, what is wrong with that moment? Nothing, right? Until your mind comes in and tells you what's wrong with it and says, well, as soon as you get this over with, you can go have a yummy breakfast. Or, you know, as soon as you do this, you can go watch television. And it's, it pulls you into the future and tells you that this moment is not quite good enough. If you only had what's coming next, or if you could only get back what you used to have, then everything would be great. And it's the greatest lie that we could ever hear. And our mind tells us this lie over and over and over again. So the practice that what drew me in was just very simple logic. And I learned it from a teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, a pretty famous Vietnamese monk. And he just said, look, the practice isn't hard. When you're brushing your teeth, just let go of the thoughts that aren't needed to brush your teeth and just brush your teeth. And so I said, okay, well, that doesn't sound too hard. And then I noticed, wow, if I'm just brushing the teeth, how is brushing my teeth in a prison cell any different than brushing it in a five-star hotel when someone invites me to come speak at their amazing conference in Phoenix or whatever the case may be? There's no difference. It's just brushing the teeth until your mind says, oh, but this is a prison cell and there's guards around and blah, 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 right? So then I extended and I said, well, if I can be free in that moment of brushing my teeth, which obviously you can, right? Would you agree with that logic? If you're not comparing your present moment experience to thoughts of past or future, present moment is perfect. You are a free person in that moment. There is no prison. There's just brushing the teeth. If I can do it while brushing my teeth, well, couldn't I do it while I get dressed? Couldn't I do it while I make my bed? Couldn't I do it while I walk around? Couldn't I do it while I'm sitting, lying down, any, whatever you're doing? Couldn't I do it? And I realized, well, maybe not all at once, But if I little by little start developing a habit of being mindful in those activities, then sure enough, that's what I noticed six months later after I had started the practice was 
for the most part, when I was walking, I was just walking. When I was brushing my teeth, I was just brushing my teeth. And in any moment that that was happening, I was a free person. There was no prison. And to extend that to your listeners, this is true for all of you. You, know, you might have just had the worst interaction with a spouse or a child before you go to work. But if you're sitting in your car, what's wrong with sitting in your car? Nothing until you start replaying that horrible conversation, right? Or if you're dreading going to work, you know, what, what's on your way to work? What's wrong with sitting in the car on the way to work? Nothing except for all of your thoughts about how bad the day is going to be. So that's the real prison. The real prison is not what happens to us. It's what we think about what happens to us, the stories we tell ourselves. And if we can see those things objectively and not allow them to impinge on us, then there's no problems. And yes, even in a prison, you can be perfectly satisfied. I um, So I'm going to put this in the context that I hear from all the time. So we have someone who's dealing with a peer, a boss, or a direct report who is not doing, shall we say, the right thing, a good thing. We're not happy with them. They're not performing. They're not treating us the way we want to be treated. Pick any one of those that you want. Mm -hmm. And we tell our story, ourselves a story about how awful that person is and therefore how much I dread going to work, interacting with them, having to deal with them, the next meeting with them, how much I'm going to give feedback, whatever. All of that stuff is running in our head constantly. But your argument is in a mindfulness practice, I'm just in the moment going to work. I'm in the moment, I'm at my desk doing whatever I do at my desk. I'm not anticipating what's going to happen, nor reliving what has happened. Right. Unless you choose to. Unless and, you choose to. And so it's now we have a choice. Almost no one I know has that choice. Yeah. You know, if you're if you really wanna pay attention to your dinner, but you're replaying a conversation with a coworker or an employee that was miserable, yeah. you don't most people don't have the choice to just enjoy their dinner. They ha they're a prisoner to the thoughts going through their mind. So I'm not saying that you know you need to walk around with an empty mind. What I'm saying is with practice, you can develop the choice. Whereas, you know, you realize, look, I mean, if you if you really reflect, <laughs> I think the conscious mind is incredibly limited. So consciously trying to solve a problem is probably not the best way to solve a problem anyhow. Almost everyone can relate to the experience of you're trying to remember somebody's name that you recently met and it's just not coming to you. Well, when does it come to you? When you stop trying to remember it, right? You go drink some water or something. And, oh, it's Wanda. That's right. Yeah. I remember her name now. Uh, it's very similar on a really complex problem. You work on it, you work on it, you work on it. And then you go to sleep. You wake up in the morning. Ta-da! Guess what your subconscious mind did? Your superpower brain fixed, solved that while you were sleeping. <laughs> and it comes to you, right? So... We think we have this obsession with our conscious thought, with the voice in our heads, that we can solve every problem with that thing. The reality is you probably can't. And, uh, and uh, we waste a lot of energy in trying to do so. So the point is, if, if you have a mindfulness practice, then when you realize like, you know, I don't need to be thinking about that right now. I want to just be with my kids. You can develop the ability to drop the problem. And then if you want to pick that problem up later after they go to bed and see if you can use your conscious mind, which is fine, to, to rationally think about the problem, great. And then if, you, if your practice is really solid, you can let that problem go and fall asleep peacefully. 
and of course I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, right? It's much easier said than done, but with practice, we get better and better and better at that. And that gives us the choice to, do I actively be want, do I actively, or do I want to be actively working on solving a problem or do I want to be just present with what I'm doing now and who I'm with? And again, I've, I know very few people who have that choice most of the time. It's pretty hard to drop a problem on demand, but this is trainable. And this is something that we can all learn right. to do. This um, Everybody who's listened to me in the last few months knows that I'm a big fan of Cassie Holmes' work, The Happier Hour. And the data is two hours of doing something a day that I enjoy is enough to put us at our happiest zone, Okay. Most of us have two hours doing something we already enjoy, give or take 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. We're pretty close to that mark already, except we don't focus on it so that Mm. we actually enjoy it. It's the same thing that you're talking about. That practice of, yes, I enjoy having dinner with my kids, or yes, I enjoy watching TV um, or with a colleague even, but am I thinking about that in the moment so that I'm enjoying that moment? Or am I racing ahead to what I haven't done or need to do or whatever else is going to happen tomorrow? All right, Matt, at this point, forget the why. I can kind of get the why. Mm -hmm. We got to talk about the how. How do you actually begin to practice this? You say, if your practice is strong enough, you can get good at this. All right. Tutorial time. How? (laughs) Well, uh, I think the simplest way to begin is much like the way I described how I began. So I think a lot of people, when they first hear of mindfulness, they immediately associate it with the word meditation, which most people think of as sitting in some uncomfortable position on a floor someplace, um, which is fine. I mean, there, there is value to that, which might come up in our discussion later. However, what I'm talking about here is much simpler, you know, that if, again, if we really reflect on our day-to-day lives, you, you had mentioned this this time thing. You know, it's funny. I hadn't thought about that in terms of how much time we could have to enjoy things. But in a similar way, I've figured, you know, if you just calculate what you're doing in the day, for the average person, it's probably about two hours of every day is spent doing things that you have to do anyhow. You're going to do them. At least you need, you, you probably should do them if you want to be healthy, like brushing your teeth and taking a shower and going to the bathroom and stuff like that. But, you know, about two hours of our day is spent doing things like that, that, that you do in relative solitude, um, that you're going to do anyhow. And we usually rush through those activities to get on to what's next, to get on to what we feel is the exciting future that's right around the corner, right? So I think a good way to start the practice is to make a list of all the things that you do every day, or at least most days, that you're going to do anyhow, like making your bed, brushing your teeth, using the toilet, taking a shower, washing your hands, drinking water, preparing food or coffee. You get the idea, right? These are driving your car to work or commuting on a subway, walking from your office to to the car or vice versa. These are things, just make a list of those things. There's probably going to be two hours worth of stuff on there. And then what I suggest is for a week, just pick one of those things and commit to practicing mindfulness during that activity and do whatever you need to do to remind yourself to remember to at least try every time you do that activity for the week. So I always like to start with brushing the teeth because most people are going to do that at least once a day, maybe twice. And 
so whatever your toothbrush is, maybe just take a sticky note and just put a little smiley face on there that just reminds you, hey, when, when I'm brushing the teeth, I don't need to be thinking about what just happened. I don't need to be thinking about what's going to happen today. I can recognize, it's fine if those thoughts are there. The thoughts are not the enemy. The problem is when we're identified with them and we just are in there arguing with ourselves or talking to ourselves and we're not, we're distracted by them. That's, that's the issue. I, it doesn't matter to me whether thoughts are present or not, as long as we know that they're happening or not happening. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is, do we know whether or not there is thinking present? So the practice could be before you pick up your toothbrush, you see your little sticky note, just take one in-breath and out-breath and just remind yourself, just brushing the teeth. And then when you brush your teeth, just be curious like a little kid. What is it actually like? What is the sensation of the brush in your hands? What, a, what does it feel like when the bristles are touching your teeth and your gums? It actually kind of tickles a little bit. You might find it's actually, it's kind of a nice sensation. It's a nice side effect. You get cleaner teeth this way too. Because <laughs> you, how many of you, I'm sure all of us have gotten what we think is to about halfway through brushing our teeth. And we're like, oh man, did I do the top or the bottom? I don't remember because I was so lost in thought. So this, you actually save time. You only have to brush yourself, you brush your teeth for two minutes instead of four because you don't, you, you remember which teeth you brushed. But that's the idea. When thoughts arise, you might just mentally note, oh, there's some thinking. Just let it be there. There's nothing to do about it. There's no problem. Just notice, as soon as you know that there's thinking, you are free again. So once you know that there's thinking, you can just go right back to being curious. Not some strong effort. You're not trying to focus on anything. Just kind of generally curious about what is it like to brush the teeth. That's it. Just do that for a week. And then week number two, pick a second activity and continue with brushing the teeth. So week two, you're doing two activities. And you continue on until you get through your whole list of 12 activities or so. Before you know it, you've got 12 anchors for practicing mindfulness and you haven't added anything to your schedule. All you've done is enrich activities that you're going to do anyhow. They're going to be more enjoyable and they become an opportunity to train your mind to be happy and to develop self-awareness, which is probably the most important leadership skill there is. All right. So I want to make sure I've got this straight because I think I have a wrong conception of mindfulness. And I can't tell you how many books about this I've read too, but I'm brushing my teeth or making my bed or walking to the post office box or whatever. And I have thoughts in my head. They don't seem to stop. They come for me, at least they come pretty regularly and pretty frequently. And the point is not to stop the thoughts but to not get caught by the thoughts, not to get distracted by the thoughts. All right. So here I am walking to the post office and I'm thinking about some conversation I need to have. What am I doing in my head at that moment? I'm saying, oh, look at that. I'm having these convers this conversation in my head and exactly. go back to focusing on what it feels like to be walking or the sunshine or the sounds or the noises or whatever's around me. Yes. I, with one little minor correction, I, I would hesitate yeah. to use the word focus. Focus. Uh, yes. It's a much more gentle effort. Just noticing, just okay. being aware. So as soon as you know that there's thinking, oh, you could even be, make fun of it a little bit. Oh, thinking about my meeting again. And maybe even take a second to just listen to it, look at the thoughts and then go, like, as you mentioned, go right back to, okay, well, that's, that can be there. And now I'm just walking again. I know. And there's this fear. I know for me, there's this fear that if I'm not thinking about this upcoming conversation that I have, then I'm not getting prepared for the conversation. 
But as you rightly said, it's rarely my thinking about the conversation that actually gets me prepared. It's the whatever happens in the background when I'm not thinking about it, and it just sort of generally emerges how I want to approach the conversation. And and from an even higher level, what is going to make you more effective? What you say or your ability to be present to the little cues people are giving you in the room? You know, picking up on the emotions in the room, picking up on who might be tuning out. And I guarantee you that's not happening if we're caught up in what we're going to say. We're a little anxious. So, yeah, th- this this starts off with some pretty obvious uh, benefits. But the more that you that we really look into this, I mean, this is why I say self-awareness is the most important skill we can develop as leaders. I mean, as humans generally, but as specifically as leaders. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, if you show up to an interaction and you're fully present, you're going to be much more likely to really help someone else feel heard. Even if you're the presenter, but when you're asking questions, someone's saying something, you can help them feel heard. And just little things like asking them their name, you know, and re- asking a follow-up question when they ask a question, instead of immediately going into little things that just help someone feel connected to you. Um, these all come from not being caught up in the thoughts in our heads. Yeah, easier said to, as I can imagine okay. most people struggle with how do I do that when I'm giving a talk? I actually think if you know what you're going to say, is not that hard to do. I think that's one of the things that I do. And I secretly think, Matt, this is why coaching as a practice and as it, it, at my profession has exploded in the last three years. You see the one place where you can feel like you're actually hurt. I agree. A good skillful coach, coach is present. Yeah. Yeah. A skillful coach isn't teaching you stuff. A good coach is helping you uncover the answers you already have. Yeah. And you can't do that if you've got some script in your head that's running over what you're going to tell this person. You have to be really present, right? And understand where are they at. Ask them questions that open up possibilities for them that they might not have found, but they it exists within them. They just haven't found it yet. I actually think there's a lovely blend between there is time to tell stuff, but there's you, you can't start there. And that can right. be all you do. So anyway, well, we're not here to talk about coaching. We're here to talk about mindfulness. <laughs> all right. Okay, Matt, you've inspired me. I've got to go try this. Um, you know, and I'm gonna for me, this is gonna be when I'm walking to the next thing that I've got to do, which is a pretty regular practice in my life. It's not a long walk. I'm going to start with that because I think that's the one place where it's the easiest for me. And the idea is I'm being aware of that moment, aware of the thoughts in my head, aware of what's going on around me, aware of the sensations that I'm experiencing. It's not that I'm trying to focus on one thing or another. I'm just literally being aware. Did I do a decent job of capturing that? Pretty close. Yeah. I think uh, the one subtle yeah. change I would offer is that the way you just described that, it sounds like there's quite a bit of effort, you know, like yeah. we have to really try to be aware of things. I think what you'll find is that the moment that you break out of the habit of talking to yourself, you're already aware. Mm-hmm. So then the, so that's the first practice. And that can be as easily as just from time to time, just asking, is there any thinking now? Or you could just remind yourself, just walking. The point is when you use that inner voice skillfully, 
all of a sudden you shift from being feeling as though you are that inner voice to being that which is listening to the inner voice. And once you're listening to the inner voice, if you pay attention to experience, I, I'm very confident, if not 100% confident, you will find that you are aware of what's happening in the present moment. Your brain will decide what it needs to focus on. You don't have to do that. Um, you know, if there's a taxi that's going to run into you in New York, your your brain will pick up on that and protect you. So you know, you don't you don't have to focus on your feet necessarily or focus on this thing or the other thing. It's just if you just know whether or not there's thinking. Okay. In that moment where you become the listener and the observer, you don't have to try anymore. It's truly just walking. And what you'll find is, wow. Yeah, I'm not distracted. And then maybe 15, 20 seconds thoughts come back and you can just say, oh, there's some thinking again. And now just walking. And I think you'll find that the awareness is there. You are aware of your feet touching the ground. You're aware of the beautiful person you see sitting on the sidewalk, asking for some money for some food or whatever else they, they want. Um, you, you'll, you'll feel the breeze on your face. You'll hear the sounds of the taxis not honking anymore because... That's illegal in New York now, right? So they don't do it as much. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Debatable. <laughs> yes. But all these things, you'll you'll notice that they're just happening. And you don't have to really try. So really the effort is to just know whether or not there's thinking. And even that, again, shouldn't be some strong effort. It's just from now, from now, time to time, just check in. You know, it might be every 30 seconds. It might be a minute. But just, hey, is there any thinking now? Or if you find that there is something, like, okay, there's some thinking. And now I'm just walking. And Interesting, because I always think about it as the effort to, but what you're describing is not effort. Exactly. Yeah. Who's doing the effort? Yeah. Really, that the effort to is thinking again. Okay. There's this intentionality of, I am paying attention to this. I am aware of this. Those are just all thoughts. Like, here's an example. I don't remember the guy who did this. It was in a workshop I was in. I thought it was brilliant. But like, l let's just use um, this moment for a second. So you probably haven't been aware of your breath while we're doing this interview, right? Yep. So now you're probably aware of your breath because I called it to your attention. Right. Now, what I'd like you to do is try intentionally not notice that your body's breathing. Try to not notice that your body's expanding and contracting as you sit there. Can you do it? Can you intentionally not notice that that's happening? No. No. Not what now. happened was what you will become unaware as soon as you start thinking again. But when I just give you that simple suggestion, try to not notice something. You can't really do it. Right? So, so there's no effort to notice it. In fact, the, you can't even succeed at the effort to not notice it. So, this is kind of what I'm pointing to is if, if we're not caught up in our thinking, you're going to have a nice general awareness of what's happening now. Your brain will decide what is most important to focus on for your own safety, but you will not be distracted. You will not be lost in thought. You will be present and it's pretty effortless. Okay. All right. I'm going to try it. And then I'm reporting back to you because this is unique in the ways that I have thought I understood mindfulness. All right, Matt, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest today is Matt Tenney. The book that we're talking about is The Mindfulness Edge, How to Rewire Your Brain for Leadership and Personal Excellence Without Adding to Your Schedule. And I think that's the important part because this is doing things that you normally do. And the practice here is to just doing something that you are already doing 
a daily habit to notice, to check in, is there thinking? No further effort. Just check in. A minute later, check in again. Is there thinking? And to continually do that. Week one, activity. Week two, do a different activity. Add another activity. And pretty soon you've got a practice that has a couple of hours a day with just tuning in to awareness of the thoughts that are going on in your head. Did I get it right this time, Matt? Sounds great. Okay. All right. I think I'm there. I think, I think, I think. I'll have to report back. When we come back, I want to talk about how this practice helps you manage emotions and be more creative and productive and a whole bunch of other things. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Matt Tenney. The book we're talking about is The Mindfulness Edge. Um, Matt is also an author of Serve to be Great and an upcoming book entitled Inspire Greatness. We've been talking about mindfulness. And I have to tell you, I've read a bunch of books on mindfulness. I've seen some of the practices that my clients are doing. Typically, people have this notion that they go to a class around mindfulness, like meditation. And while that might be useful, what's fascinating to me about Matt's approach is it something I do in my normal routine with my normal routine? And it actually is less effortful 
than trying to do meditation in ways because all I'm doing is tuning into are there thoughts. I want to become aware of the thoughts that are in my head or the voice that's in my head. And that's kind of all I want to do. And then once I'm aware of those thoughts, then I am not those thoughts. Those thoughts are not driving my behavior or my thinking about the next moment or my lack of presence. So I think I've got the concept here. Matt's going to tell me if I'm right or wrong. What I want to focus on is there's a chapter in your book about managing emotions. So how does this help us manage emotions? Oh, that's that's probably uh, one of the most fun areas of the practice. Uh, no, I'm sure nobody listening has ever been angry. No, of course no, not. We've never been anxious. And so obviously we all experience these things. And I think we can all agree. Let's just go you know, uh, from the position of being a leader. If I'm if I'm anxious or frustrated or angry, just I don't want the listener to you know if you if you don't mind please listener just take a a self assessment on a scale of one to ten how effective are you if you're moderately frustrated or anxious? Mm. How effective are you if you're significantly frustrated or significantly anxious? And I think if you reflect on your own experience, you realize the answer is not so much. <laughs> Right. And the science tells us this very clearly. When we are caught up in these really challenging, unpleasant emotions, we are not skillful in our communication. We see we say things that reduce employee engagement and motivation. I mean, people have actually quit because of things that bosses have said when they're anxious or angry. Mm -hmm. Um, so we we harm relationships. It's very clear, the science is very clear that our ability to think rationally and make good decisions decisions decreases significantly. The ability to think creatively is essentially zero um, it, when these emotions are present. So, you know, it, to me, it's a, this is a lot about a, a simple way to increase productivity. So, you know, let's just say that on average, if I'm significantly triggered with anxiety or frustration, let's just say to be really conservative. And some people have told me it's days for them, but you know, if they're really angry about something, it's days before they stop thinking about it and they're fully 100% back to their normal high effectiveness. But let's just be really conservative. Let's just say it's six hours. So, and let's just think about how often are we triggered? So how often does it arise where there's a, a moderate to significant level of anxiety or frustration or anger that then persists and reduce our effectiveness for six hours? Yeah, maybe for some people, it's once every two weeks. For some people, sadly, it's once every other day. Some people, it's every day. Mm -hmm. So now you can do the math on this, right? I mean, whatever that number is for you, how much productivity are you losing as a result of these emotional states? And for many people, I mean, we're talking about dozens of hours, uh, if not hundreds in a year. So this is a tremendous hit <laughs> to our productivity. So now just hypothetically, and you don't have to agree that this is possible yet, but I'm going to try to make the case for this. What if you could take that six hours every time you're triggered and reduce the loss of effectiveness down to minutes, 10, 15 minutes? You know, so now we're talking about getting dozens, if not hundreds of hours of productivity back. Not to mention who, who listening enjoys being anxious or frustrated or angry. I have yet to meet a person that's psychologically well that enjoys those emotional states. Um, now, Sometimes people enjoy them temporarily. So those of you who like to lift weights, I get it. You know, you like to you like to listen to some heavy metal and 
you know, get get some anger going to get some adrenaline going. It's okay in temporary boost, right? But you definitely don't want to be angry when you're not lifting weights. Right? If you're present with another person, you don't want that. So then the question is, how how do we do this? I, I, I'm fairly convinced, I'm fairly confident that this is possible for anyone. It might take a little longer for some than others, but we can take those six hours of lost productivity and get that down to minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, high-level practitioners, it's almost uh, no trace of emotion like this. So an emotion arises and without any effort, it ceases. And we'll come back to that in a second because it's very important this distinction between making an effort to regulate emotion and creating the capacity for wisdom to take care of the emotion on its own. Uh, but that'll be that'll be towards the end of this, okay. this uh, conversation. So the idea here is um, I, I use a four-step process and there's different people have created th- similar processes with slightly different terms and things, but um, I call it skill. So it's uh, S-C- I L and so the, the first step in this process is the S is to stop. So what I mean by that is if I'm triggered by something, I might perceive that to be the cause of my anxiety or frustration, but it's really not. It's really my own thinking and the stories that I'm telling myself. However, the longer that I interact with that perceived cause of the emotion, the more I'm just adding fuel to the fire. So let's just make this real practical. Let's say Wanda and I are having a discussion. She, I say something very unskillful. She gets frustrated. What, what I would recommend Wanda do is to say, Matt, uh, I'm actually feeling a little frustrated in this moment. I think it would be probably best for me and for both of us if I could just take a few minutes and I just need to step out, get a drink of water, um, and then we can continue, mm-hmm. right? That's a pretty brave thing to do, um, but it can be done. I mean, how, how hard would that be to actually do? It seems scary when you think about it, but if you've ever done it, it's like everything that's scary. Once you do it, you're like, well, the person. what am I going to say? I mean, what am I going to say to that, Wanda? No, like, you need to stand here and argue with me? No, I'm going to say, okay, sorry that I made you frustrated. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to continue when, when you're ready. So it's a pretty simple way to just create some space, right? So that's the first step is stop. Stop interacting with the perceived cause of the emotion. So the second step is C, which is control the breathing and name the emotion. So now before we were talking about this is effortless, right? We're not trying to focus. We're not trying to control anything. This is the one exception there is an extremely large body of evidence showing that if you consciously control the breathing, which is normally an, autono- an, anatomic, an autonomic function, the mean, the meaning this is controlled by your brainstem. You don't have to consciously tell yourself to breathe. You breathe all night while you're asleep, right? right? If you were to pass out and you were unconscious, the first thing your body would do is start breathing itself. So this is normally um, an automatic function uh, of the body. And if you consciously control this automatic function, it short circuits the fight or flight response. And all of these unpleasant emotions like anger, frustration, anxiety, these are all different variations of the fight or flight response. So all you're gonna do is just breathe in a little bit more slowly, breathe out a little bit more slowly. And when you just control the breath like that, you literally, it's like pulling the plug out of the fuel for that emotion. And then you can add to that by 
naming the emotion that's present. And I forget the research. I think it's Matthew Lieberman from UCLA, but he's done quite a bit of research on this. That just by labeling an emotion, you create that objectivity that we were talking about in the first session. So now you see the emotion objectivity objectively in the body. You're not identified. You don't, you don't feel so much as I am angry, I am anxious. You just notice, oh, there is anxiety in the body. There, there is frustration. So there's some space. And th these two things in conjunction are very powerful. So what I recommend is as you're controlling the breathing, you could just create a little mantra for yourself. And it might just be um, you know, breathing in, I notice that there is anger. Breathing out, it's okay for the anger to be here. Or anxiety or frustration, whatever the emotion is. But so now you're doing both of those. Both of these have been proven scientifically to be extremely effective at short-circuiting the fight-or-flight response. You're combining them to create a kind of a synergistic effect that's even more powerful. Okay. So step three then, the I, is investigate. Now, this is where it gets really fun. Most of us, if we're caught in, a, in an emotion, we do one of two things. We fuel it by continuing to think about Oh, I can't believe she said that. Oh, I'm going to do this, blah, blah, blah. And we, we feel the emotion or we're above that and we pretend that we don't have that feeling. I'm not angry. I don't get angry. I'm just going to ignore that this is even here. Yeah. Both of these are problematic. Both of them are going to result in not being able to recover from this emotion as quickly as you'd like to. Someplace in the middle is a very courageous move. Just as, just as courageous as telling someone, I'm sorry, but I feel frustrated right now. I think it would be better if I took a break to go get a drink of water and maybe we could continue in a couple minutes. That takes courage to do, but you can do it, right? Similarly, it takes courage to turn towards an emotion and investigate it. So we're turning towards the anxiety or the frustration or the anger and we're, it's almost like you're a scientist in your own body. What is it actually like? So just as kind of a segue from the control and name the emotion, control the breathing and name the emotion to investigate, you know, you might only need to do that for 10 breaths or so. And then as you've noticed that the emotion isn't escalating, you can shift to this investigate. And now you don't need to control the breathing anymore. You don't need to continue naming the emotion, but you're really going to just pay attention to what is this emotion actually like what is anxiety actually like oh there's butterflies in my stomach oh there's there's some tension in my shoulders and you're not trying to change anything you're not trying to fix anything you're not trying to get rid of anything you're just simply noticing what is it like and this is where you'll notice that emotion starts to really de-escalate um so it's these these first three steps kind of reverse what normally happens. Normally happens is we continue interacting with a perceived cause and that makes the emotion trigger uh, or, or fuel itself. It gets stronger and stronger. That makes the thoughts race faster. That makes the emotion stronger. Those two things fuel each other until sometimes we lose control and do something we really regret. This is taking the opposite where you're, you're stopping, you're not interacting, you're controlling the breath and naming that creates some space and now you're investigating. And each time you're doing this, Thoughts are going to keep coming, but you do the practice we've talked about earlier, just recognizing, oh, there's still, I'm thinking about the problem. Now let's go back. What is, what is anxiety actually like in the body? 
And the longer you stay with that, the more the mind just calms down. And that's the real cause of the emotion, right? The real cause of the emotion is the thoughts in our head, not what just happened to us. And so with practice, um, this time to get back to a neutral emotional state becomes, it requires less and less time. And then the real, the L, the last step is looking deeply. So this is where we actually take a time. So, and I don't recommend doing this until you're back to a neutral state. But once you're back to a neutral state, you take some time to just look deeply at, well, what is the real cause of this emotion? And what was the real cause of the perceived cause? Like, for instance, if if somebody did something that makes you angry, I found it very helpful to think, well, what might be going on for them? You know, maybe they were raised in an angry household. Maybe they just had a terrible day. And now you're starting to realize, okay, the real problem isn't that person or what they said. The real problem is my thoughts about what they said. Because if I knew, like, let's just say, for instance, somebody said something that made you feel upset. And then you found out that like their husband just died yesterday. You might give them a little slack, right? The reality is everybody has something like that. Now, I'm, that's a very important point here that it's, this is not something we do right, right away. This is called cognitive reframing, I think, in psychology. Yep. It's not something you want to do right away. It's, mu- it's very important to, to care for the emotion first, then look deeply and practice cognitive okay. reframing. And then what happens over time is we start to real, we develop this wisdom that the thoughts are not what I am. They're just things passing through awareness. The emotion is not what I am. And it's this wisdom that makes it so that long-term practitioners don't have to do a conscious process anymore. When you watch in brain activity of somebody doing what I just described, there's a lot of activity in the prefrontal cortex, down-regulating activity in the amygdala. So there's a lot of effort and you can see that effort in the brain. When you look at the brains of advanced practitioners, there's no activity in the prefrontal cortex. It's a bottom-up activity. The, the, um, The moment the emotion is seen in awareness, the activity in the amygdala starts to calm down on its own and it stops from the bottom up. So it's not, this isn't conclusive evidence, but it, to me, it's very intriguing evidence um, that we can gradually develop wisdom that allows us to be more resilient to these situations. Perfect. Matt, what a brilliant description. So stop, stop the interacting control my breathing intentionally and name the emotion and don't get too complicated. I would argue about naming the emotion. Keep it real simple. One of the six or seven big ones. Don't get over investigate. Then investigate. Kana, what is that really about? What does that feel like in my body? Pay attention. And then from a different state later, what was the real cause? And I think I think you're right. You will find that it's my thoughts about it that creates the trouble, not necessarily what was actually said in the moment. Um, and I see that practiced every day. And by the way, you say it's six hours of lost productivity. I can name people for its years of problems <laughs> with that one. Matt, sadly, we are out of time. I think we could keep talking about this forever. My guest today, Matt Tenney, the book is called The Mindfulness Edge. Matt, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch? Oh, very simple. Uh, this, my website is mattenny.com. And if you can't, don't know how to spell it, just Google something that sounds like Matt Tenney. I'm pretty sure it'll come up. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Matt, it's fabulous to have you as a guest. What a great conversation. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thanks so much for having me, Wanda. Wanda. 
Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.